today we're here to hear some tales from the beat. We've got a panel of servicemen or ex-servicemen in the studio with us today to discuss policing on the Isle of Man. Um, if I could hand over to uh, to you, maybe Paul and Kev, just to introduce everybody who's here. Yeah, sure. Uh, well, fast to my everybody. Uh, my name's Paul Davenport. I'm the Assistant Secretary of an organisation called NARPO, uh, which is the National Association of Retired Police Officers. Uh, we're the Isle of Man branch, obviously. Um, we have currently about 150 members on the island. When police officers retire, it's a voluntary organisation. You don't have to join. Uh, but we've got about 150 members at the minute. Principally, the existence of NARPO is to uh, look after the pension rights and welfare of retired police officers, uh, especially as our members get older. Being a pensioners organisation, obviously, getting older is one of the uh, surest things we've got. And also our widows as well. We've got quite a, a number of police widows who we try and look out for uh, and look out for their welfare and make sure they're uh, looked after in their older years as well. I'd also mention just that... Um, this is NARPO's centenary year, 2019. The organisation itself was founded in 1919, so we're having our centenary year. Uh, the local branch, the Isle of Man branch of NARPO, uh, was only formed in, I think it was 1953, so we haven't been going quite that long. Um, but we've, uh, we're having our centenary year this year. And if you'd like me to introduce the panel, um, also having a centenary year uh, this year is our oldest member, uh, Hector Duff. Um, also with us today is John Tier. Uh, anyone from the Peel area will know John. Um, not only a 31-year service police officer, but heavily involved in the community in Peel and the lifeboats. Uh, we've also got us with us uh, Richard Davis, um, who joined the police in 1962 as a cadet. As a cadet. Yeah. Um, so that goes back quite a bit. And we've also got Kevin Wilson, one of our younger members, who's only been retired about two years, is it, Kevin? Yeah, just under. Just yeah. under two years. So, Guramai, thank you very much thank indeed. Um, and uh, just just before we, we sort of get going into discussion, um, a reminder that we would love all listeners to get involved this afternoon. You can give us your thoughts on anything you hear. Uh, you can post some questions for our panel or, or any other contributions that spring to mind. You can text us on 166167. You can email studio at manxradio.com. You can use the hashtag MRPerspective on social media. Um, now, you've mentioned our guests, obviously, today, all from the National Association of Retired Police Officers. Um, in my introduction, I introduced it as Tales from the Beat, um, First of all, what, what, what is that beat and, and maybe how has that, how's that changed a bit? Well, I think I, I'm not sure that they have beats now. Kevin might know a little bit more about that than me. Um, uh, I think going back to certainly the guys here who have been around longer than me, um, we had foot beats around the town. There were six foot beats when I started. And uh, John T, he was actually my section sergeant when I started. And uh, most shifts, most of those footbeats were covered with a man who would be out walking. There would also be two mobile patrols, uh, panda cars, as they were loosely referred to in those days. Um, uh, this is around Douglas, obviously. Um, and there'd uh, be the motor patrol, as they were then, or the traffic department, who uh, dealt with uh, the accidents and things like that. Um, so 24-7, obviously, those beats around Douglas were covered. So yes, there were, ten, there were 10 beats in Douglas at that time. And um, just to name them, one, number one beat was around the market area, down to the quay. Number two beat was uh, just Duke Street, around the Victoria Street. And one and two beats were always joined together because it was so small. Three beat, you had uh, Strand Street, 
uh, go over to Greenford's Corner and all the surrounding area. Then you had Four Beat, which was Harris Promenade. Then you went over to Queen's uh, Central Promenade and Queen's Promenade on the Five Beat over there. The Four and Five were usually connected together as well. Six Beat was around Athol Street. And uh, the Athol Street man there, when there was no motor trollers, it was called those days on, he manned the car overnight. That was six beat. And then seven beat was up down Books Road. And eight and nine beats were joined together. That was from uh, Rosemount all up round Governor's Bridge. And that was quite a big long beat, that. And uh, then back down to ten beat was out to the Quarter Bridge, which wasn't manned very often. It was done mostly by traffic. So those were the ten beats in Douglas and all controlled mainly by pillars. There was no radio at that time. There were uh, 19 pillars around Douglas, and they just flashed when they wanted the man on the beat. So that was the contact you had at that time. Um, and it was a bit hit and miss because if you were on the back streets, you wouldn't miss it. And they wonder, where, where have you been? You know, your pillars been flashing for 10 minutes. But uh, so that was the way it was, a little bit hit and miss in contacting. But that's the way it was, and the beats were, we had 97, I think it was, men at that time. Most of the beats were manned every night. I think Hector can probably further than that with me. <coughs> yes, well, well, yes, we were manned every night. And uh, the first month that you're there, you're always accompanied by a, a qualified uh, 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 constable who knows all the beats. And the main job of our... Mm -hmm. All it was all on nights. First, uh, you did a full night, uh, month of nights, and it, it was to get to know the beats, because <clears throat> our job then, our main job then, was to go out every night at ten o'clock, and we wouldn't come back apart from convening for a, a sandwich and a cup of tea halfway through, but we check every property in the and Douglas, and all our beats back and front. And if you found one that was open, well, we would get in touch with our headquarters through the, the pillars. We'd have to go to a pillar and ring. I found number 21, Duke Street, open. And we would got, stay there. I'd go back then to that until uh, in Douglas, in the, in the station, there was a book, uh, several, well, many, many books. But there's one with all the, the uh, key holders of all the properties and we would then get the property the, the station staff would send somebody to get get the property key holder of the place that I'd found or was, uh, we'd found and he would come and see of course around about he or she and let us know whether it had been broken into or just been forgotten but we had to do them day every day every day twice during your period tour of duty, duty at night, and if by any chance you went off, finished work, we finished at six o'clock in the morning. If we went off at six, the the day man would come on. He would then go round and visually look at all the properties. Now, if he found one that had been obviously broken into, we were in lumber. We were brought down no matter how long we'd only just gone off at six o'clock, just got into bed. We had to come down and, and Douglas and sort things out and say why we hadn't found this. It was, it was a, 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 the only thing I can say about prop, testing the property was we got to know all the key holders and we got to know all the, all the, 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 
ones that were good for a cup of teas and that sort of thing, <laughs> and we got to know them. But uh, I don't know. I don't think that's done now. The test tech checking the properties and that. Well, uh, I, I now to things are things have moved on quite considerably, haven't they? From, yeah. I mean, I, I'm very familiar with the beats when I first joined. That that's how things were done. But like everything in life, it evolves and it changes, and it's more focused around yeah. neighbourhood policing and the, and the different type of, but of we policing that exists now. We were the full month at nights, on nights, knowing, getting to know the properties and the beats. It's an awful lot of property of uh, of terraces and and that sort of thing, and we had to get to know them all. So we didn't know them all by heart, but we eventually did. I think <clears> I could <throat> ask one, probably ask these many, and now one and i don't know whether they would tell me where it was or not but i'll not try them maybe later <laughs> but um, we that was to get to know the beats and uh, thank, thank you very much for such a such a detailed description yeah. it's quite quite a meticulous process then um which perhaps people wouldn't necessarily realize um how how has that sort of scheduling changed then maybe, maybe one for you you kevin well certainly when i you know when, when i first joined and certainly was familiar with uh, the guys here. It's just it was very prescriptive. Um, you were issued an area that you were to patrol that day, and the expectation was that that's what you did. Uh, and you've infrequently left it, really, in all honesty. Uh, nowadays, the, the requirement to, to to respond to different types of, of issues means that the, the uh, and and everything else that goes around in modern policing means that the, it's, it's it's just a different approach. So it's more centred around neighbourhood policing teams. Uh, there's more specialist teams out there now that's uh, that's that's drawn out over the years. So it just just means it's evolved and it's different. Do they actually have beats now, Kevin? Well, they may have gone back since I've gone back. <laughs> it was more, it was more about the neighbourhood policing teams and actually yeah. subdividing the areas and making sure that the areas of police, because obviously even in the 30 years that or just under that I was in, the, the Douglas grew beyond all recognition. Peel has grown uh, all recognition. So. And the need to to get about the island has changed, doesn't it? Really, so that's, that's, focus, that's an interesting point. Actually, even before we talk about any sort of technological changes or anything like that, there's there's more to cover now, isn't there? For a start, I mean, um, absolutely. You know, geographically, there, there is absolutely far more to cover. Um, uh, you know, far more people. So, the traditional beats of sort of the outlying areas that once were way back when are now they're just as much as say Douglas or, or Peel now than, than anything else and a point that was raised they, are, they always tell us that there's only horses and carts when we were here around but there were uh, there were a lot of cars too but there were certainly more uh, there were, were lots of horses and carts but um, the thing was there was only 97 of us now there's over 200 so uh, mm. it's a big difference in that in that area isn't it one thing we haven't touched on yet is the, the, the substations. Perhaps Richard can fill us in that because he was on substation as well. Yeah, well, I did time at Duncan and Paul Rose and also covered lots of the other uh, minor stations when people were a day off or on leave or whatever. And, of course, in those days, what I'm talking about, um, I mean, I joined as a cadet in 1962 and then became a constable in 1965. And then from 1969 for several years, I was stationed in Onken and Paul Rose and covering numerous other substations, as I've just said. Um, a lot of them, of course, have subsequently closed. I mean, we had an awful lot of minor substations, like so Paul Rose, Williston, um, Laxey, Onken. Obviously, there were three men at Onken at one time. 
And then um, we basically, I was based at Onkin and covered the other stations when the man that was there was, was on the day off. Um, the difference in those days was not only were there more stations, I mean, they were all dotted all over the island. They had them, the likes of, say, Crosby, St. John's, uh, even yeah. at one time, uh, Kurt Michael and Balaf, would you believe? Andrea yeah. St. Jerby, yeah. loads of stations. Most of them, when I joined, were operated by PCs with motorcycles. They didn't have cars or vans. Yeah. Uh, the, the only people who had those were the likes of CID, uh, Motor Patrol, or what later became the Traffic Department, and a couple of others. They'd have like a van in Peel, one in Castleton, that sort of thing. Um, so it was done in an entirely different way. I mean, communication wasn't nearly as good. For instance, we didn't have any personal radios. Um, most of the vehicles had radios when they worked. Um, they were on the old VHF system so that anybody with an FM radio could listen into what was going on. So they weren't exactly very uh, confidential, to put it mildly. Um, and the whole thing was done in an entirely different way, I suspect, to what it is now. I mean, bear in mind, I've been retired since 1993, so uh, I'm probably slightly out of touch with what goes on now. But I do know, obviously, that a lot of those police stations have closed down. Um, but when you were, like, for instance, the Onken PC or the Polrose PC or whatever, you might be on duty on a given day, but it didn't mean to say you were on duty for only eight hours. Nominally you were, but in practice it didn't work out like that because no matter what happened during the day or at night and the phone went, you were it. Uh, you just sort of turned out, got your uniform on if you didn't already have it on, <coughs> and uh, out you went to whatever was going on. So it's sort of like being permanently on call, I suppose. Exactly, yeah, yeah. and you didn't yeah. get paid for that. You only got paid for the eight hours. So, you know, it was one of those jobs that you, uh, it was part of the job, that was the way it was done, so you did it. I actually brought that up one time at a federation meeting that we, I was in substations as well, and I brought up that we should get extra pay for being on standby all 24 hours a day. But they said no, we never got it. So you get the same pay as a man doing eight hours and finish, you know, you're on call. I've got many a call out at night, so did Monsieur oh, Richard yeah. and yeah. Hector was also in uh, substations yeah. and uh, many a call out at night, you know, but you got the same pay. So very my substitute, first one was, uh, I was about nine years, nearly ten, and that was in the whole of Braddon and Moran. And the first, uh, the first two years, I was on a push bike. That progressed up to a, a motorbike, and uh, got a little bit better. But it was the happiest days of my life on the police force. I got to know every farmer, and his wife, and. Uh, who made good tea and good bonnogs <laughs> and things like that. And uh, I was, it was quite a busy period, really, because I took over in 47 when they were just uh, the, the, the examination of all the dairy cattle on the island was, was start, started then. And the farmers had to have their cattle examined. If they failed the test, they were slaughtered immediately. And the only way they could get replacements was from the mainland, from the UK. And when they would come, they would come with a, uh, be examined by the, the, the government vet. And I would have a form of where they were. They were in such, such a farm. Well, I'd come from Michael and I, and before that, Solby. And I didn't know half the, or quarter of the farms in Braddon and Moran. 
But when I got this this job doing this, that was wonderful of me. I got to know every farmer and farm where they were, that sort of thing. And uh, you're you're very much a community figure, I suppose, in that respect. Have being that that pillar of a of a community that you're you're operating in. Well, we we know. I had a push bike first, and then the motorbike. No, no, no telephone, no radio on it. But I had I had <coughs> nominated two or three people that I knew where I would go on a route, so that when I, if Douglas wanted me, they would ring to one several of the people around about to see had I called there, and if they called there, if I had been, they would try someone else. And I, that's how I used to contact the, the mm. or Douglas Hope contacted me. Sometimes you, it was this bit of a... <laughs> you, you mentioned a bit about the, the call-outs and yeah. um, what sorts of things, perhaps when you were, you were joining the force, would you have been called out for? When I was joining or when I was in the substations, you mean? Um, well, both. Well, we wouldn't get, you wouldn't get a call-out so much when you first started because you're on a beat eight hours and finish and you deal with whatever happens on your beat at the time. But on the substation you can get called out any time. I mean I can relate one particular one. I was in Balasala at the time and uh, I'd been day off but from midnight I was on call and I was in bed nice and warm and I got a call from a man. I'll not exactly say what he said but basically a car had come down over the Oristale Road of Stanton and overturned and he said I can't find the driver. You better get out of here. So out of bed, on the motorbike, and heading out through, you see. What had happened was, he did overturn, and he got out and went back to his girlfriend's house, so he wasn't injured as it happened. But that's the sort of call-out you could get. I was called out many times, many meals, uh, or a station poor Rose, like Richard been there as well, and uh, we covered uh, Richmond Hill, which of course, been lots of accidents there, and you many a Sunday dinner, as we would getting called out to an accident, that sort of thing, you know. So you were actually on call 24 hours a day, and if you wanted to go out to the cinema or whatever, have an evening out, you had to get somebody to cover for you if it was your day on, you know. So you uh, you were there all the time. And maybe maybe one for, for you, Richard. Yeah. What, what sorts of things were the most common incidents, perhaps, um, the most common incidents that I dealt with uh, in my time, certainly in substations and, and a lot of the rest of the time, were road traffic accidents, uh, collisions as they call them these days. Uh, just to give you an example, when I was stationed in Onken around 1969-1970, there was myself and a sergeant and another PC, and in one particular year, I can't remember which one it was, the two of us dealt with 104 road traffic accidents. That's me and the other PC. So you've got the likes of, uh, say, the White Bridge, uh, that was a fairly good one, uh, around the Liverpool Arms, that bend there, uh, down Groudle, the King Edward Road, then of course going up the TT course, you've got the likes of uh, Bedstead, Signpost, Brandish, all the way up there. We, we went as far as Windy Corner uh, to cover that area, and then going out the Laxey Way, if the Laxey guy was off, we'd be dealing with everything out as far as the Dune, and there's some pretty fair bends out that road as well, as you, as you know. And then, as uh, John Tier said, going the other way, you've got the likes of the Richmond Hill. And uh, what I also used to get roped into occasionally, literally, uh, is cliff rescues, uh, not so very far from here, off the Marine Drive, because lads would be going down after gulls' eggs and things like that, and uh, from time to time they got stuck down there and couldn't get back up. So, because, you know, in those days it was very much a, 
a can-do kind of job. He didn't sort of stand around and say, oh, I'm not trained to do this or I, I, I can't do that. Uh, you just got stuck in and did whatever you could. Um, so he used to carry a length of rope in the back of the minivan, which we'd graduated to in those days. So he simply <coughs> tied to the railings and go down and see if you can sort of uh, secure the guys. And then uh, in one particular case, I found that somebody had left the wrong piece of rope in my van. They'd obviously borrowed the, the proper one and they'd left a length of that blue nylon stuff, which is great for tying boats up with, but no good at all to grip. It's too slippery. So I got down there, managed to, to get a hold of these two lads, couldn't get back up. So anyway, I knew other people had come along before too long, so we just sort of sat there until the rocket brigade turned up with the right kind of tackle and we all got hauled up to the top. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, these days you probably think, oh, well, I'm not trained to do cliff rescues, but in those days um, it was better to be seen to be doing something rather than stand around looking useless. I'm interested in um, some of the discussions about road traffic um, collisions or accidents or whatever they've sort of been called at different times um, maybe coming to, to you Paul um, as laws have changed about I mean, an, an obvious one would be drink driving that's therefore kind of gives you a different frame of, of, of parameters within which to, to operate on, on accidents or collisions well, I, 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 well, the attitudes to drink driving changed immeasurably, of course, just it, it, over the course of my service. I, I joined in the late 70s, and, and whilst it was uh, clearly an offence and we, we, we arrested people and dealt with them for that, there was still then, back in the late 70s and early 80s, a bit of an acceptance that you could, if you were all right, you could get away with it. Of course, and, and quite correctly, that attitude has completely changed now. But I think generally as well, the whole attitude towards road safety has changed. I think um, I, I spent a short time in, in, in traffic in, in the 80s and, and Hector John and Richard have all been traffic men at different parts of the time. I, I, from my perspective, I think certainly in my day, there was not that much of an emphasis on road safety. It was more a case of these accidents will happen and we will just go and deal with them as they happen. What I perceive now, and especially more recently, and I mean, I've been retired 11 years now, but I think there is more emphasis now on the safety aspect and making the roads safer, not just by uh, the attitudes and, and skills of people, but by road design and, 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 and all that kind of thing. And I think there's much more of an emphasis now, it seems to me, on making the roads safer and preventing these accidents from happening in the first place. Whereas we always tried to do that back in our day, but it was more a case of, oh, the, certainly from my uh, uh, viewpoint, these accidents are going to happen it's you know it, tt week in the traffic department you knew you were going to have hundreds of accidents and there was uh, there seemed to be less of an emphasis then on on trying to uh, stop them from happening uh, but certainly drink driving has changed immeasurably and of course it's it's um uh, although people still do it obviously um, but certainly back then there was certainly a, a more of an acceptance of it and it seemed more socially acceptable. And the number of yeah. vehicles on the road. And of course, uh, yes, you know, there's so uh, many more yeah. even just in the last 30 or 40 years that, that Hector's absolutely right, the number of vehicles that are on the road and the more that they are high-powered now. Um, my first car only had three forward gears in it and you were lucky if you got up to about 35 miles an hour but now you see people in, in, in our, car, our plates on cars in, in you know, what in back in my day would have been almost a sports, you know, a, a racing car kind of thing. So the speeds and the performance of the vehicles uh, are so much uh, higher now, uh, and I'm not always sure that the uh, the uh, skills of the drivers uh, match that. But Hector would know about that because, of course, after the police, Hector was uh, a long time driving instructor. Yeah. 
Yeah, well, the car, yes, number of cars and the speed of the cars, but then you've got to think about the driver, the person that's driving it. They're, they're braking, the tyres are braking, the road surfaces, they're all improved. So yeah. people can, <clears throat> you go to a place where there's 30 mile an hour speed limit, you could put your 30 mile an hour, you could put your foot out through the door and stop, stop down the road. You've got to give the, uh, give the driver a little bit of, a, a, well, not encouragement, but in, uh, you've got to say, well, he can go that much quicker now, he can stop so much quicker. Everything has, has improved so much. Except reaction time. Yeah. But Except for reaction except, time. Yes, yeah. You know, well, the, the time it takes you to realise that you actually need to put your foot on the brake probably hasn't changed no. uh, at all. Admittedly, when you get your foot on the brake, th there will be a shorter stopping distance. But if you're doing, say, 60 miles an hour, you've travelled nearly 90 feet in a second. Yeah. And most people's reaction time is about two-thirds of a second. So you, you've gone a fair old way before your foot even gets to the brake pedal. Paul, you, you mentioned TT, and it would be remiss of us not to, to touch on that a bit. Um, for for health services, for journalists, of course, for police officers as well, it's it's a a massive time of year, really. You've got two weeks where, particularly in an island community, that's that's a, a, a huge pressure on, on servicemen and women to uh, to accommodate that big influx of, of, of people for a start. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. And I mean, not the TT, just the TT, of course, there's Grand Prix as well, which... Um, the the fortunes of that have uh, waned a little bit, I think. But yeah, TT has always been a busy time. But um, just going back, at Hector mentioned earlier, I think there were only 97 officers when he yeah. first started. When I joined, myself and another colleague, John Stringer, our colour numbers were 130 and 131. And we were the highest numbers then. And some of the old boys couldn't believe that there were 130 policemen, mm -hmm. um, 131 policemen on the island now that was a fantastic figure uh, of officers and I know I know it's probably double that now um, <laughs> or more than double that now but yeah so it was a hard time uh, um, uh, we were just talking before we went on air with Hector and, and in the old days if you were on you happened to be on night shifts during the TT time you would finish your night shift at uh, they were the night shifts were 12 till 8 by that time um, you'd finish at 8 o'clock in the morning you'd be lucky to have a quick half hour break and then you'd be out on the course because of course in those days the police actually police the course and there were about 50 points around the course where a police officer had to be on duty so you would finish your night shift quick half hour break and then you'd be out on the course by half past nine uh, for, probably for a whole day standing around um, uh, while the races were on especially if there were delays then you might be lucky to get a couple of hours break in the evening and then you'd be back on nights and because it was a busy time your night shift would probably start at 10 o'clock rather than the usual midnight um, so you were working for that whole fortnight if your shifts fell wrong, um, you know, you're working almost 18, 20 hour days for uh, for two weeks. And that, that was um, quite demanding and, and uh, uh, quite quite straining. Um, but I think that's <coughs> where, the, where the image of the constabulary and, and the way that it polices has, has come into sharp focus, hasn't it, through the TV and everything like that. And it just emphasises, we get that influx of people onto the island. We are a relatively small constabulary in national terms. Um, and there's a li little bit of water, um, so actually you have to get on with it. And so it's at its best, I think, the constabulary in those circumstances, uh, to be honest, about our relationship that we develop and maintain with people, not just people who come, but with, with local people as well, uh, about policing with and not to. And, you know, that's, that's really important to develop that relationship and maintain it. 
it's interesting that you sort of plotted the island's constabulary in the context of um, you know national policing, if you like, and that's that's quite a unique pressure here, isn't it? Because maybe there's a perception that some elements of of policing would be quite different here, sort of the other fifty or forty eight weeks of the year, um, but you then have to have that flexibility to to be ready for whatever comes during during racing fortnight. I think you have to have the capability to respond to anything that happened 365 days a year, not just TT. I mean, it's accelerate just be simply because of the nature of the TT and the influx of people and the, and the machinery that comes over. Um, but yeah, when you're in the middle of the sea, well, you've got to get on with it. Um, and uh, just going back to, you know, I can reflect back when something's happened, the way that the constabulary has stepped forward to deal with it, with others, uh, has generally been exemplary and it's uh, it shows in its its uh, in, in its true style i think really more so mm. really yeah yeah and, and i think as well people it, it sometimes frustrates me a little people when you say you did 30 years in the police and they say oh that must have been a cushy number nothing ever happens on the isle of man you must have been sitting around half the time doing nothing and there's no denying there was some night shifts where nothing much went on and you didn't do much uh, but you were always out there and there was always a presence certainly in my early days walking the beat uh, Sergeant T here would be making sure I was doing all my property checks like, like the guys have, uh, have, uh, have described um, but as well when there's a serious incident certainly later on in my career in the 80s and 90s things like murders uh, and that kind of thing we, you just got on with it. There was a certain amount of support from the UK and of course stuff like forensic scientists and, and that kind of thing uh, would come in. But we would find that when you went away, we did a lot of our training in the UK for some of the specialist subjects. Um, and when you went away and compared notes with people from some of the bigger forces who are supposed to be the, the better, um, people of your, your sort of peer group, people of the same similar service to you, had nowhere near the experience that we had here because mm -hmm. When a murder happens on the Isle of Man, we are it, and you had to wear multiple hats. You got on with the job, and you did whatever was needed. And most, certainly during the 80s and 90s in my time, we didn't bring in outside force help for any of the big jobs that we had. We dealt with it with it all in-house, and very successfully in the majority of cases, uh, I'd like to say. Um, so this perception that we're a little backwater where nothing ever happened is, is, is completely wrong. And I think the con the island population should be pleased with the quality of the police that they've had over the years generally, um, in that we've been able to get on and, and had great success in, in a lot of these big jobs. And I'm not just talking about the big jobs like murders. There's long-standing fraud inquiries, um, uh, domestic abuse, uh, road traffic accidents, uh, or collisions as they now call them. Um, you know, there's, there's a huge amount of work goes on behind the scenes. Um, and the guys in the Isle of Man are very good at being um, um, multitasking and doing more than more than one job at once. I think I think that's one of the things that um, uh, you can talk about when you reflect back over the years. That you can say that the the police here have punched above the weight, if that's the right phrase to use, mm. time and time again. And it's certainly one of the things that you can look back with pride uh, with the people that you worked with who came together um, and did their very best uh, on all occasions. And it is one of the conversations you do here, just, just to, to support Paul on that, about, well, you don't deal with it every day of the week. Well, no, that's very true, and aren't we lucky that we mm -hmm. don't? Thank goodness we don't. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, but when it does happen, that doesn't mean to say that the level of service that you provide for that victim or that victim's family should be anything less 
than what you'd expect anywhere else and uh, you know and and that's where you step up that's where you go the extra mile and time and time again I saw colleagues doing that um, and, it, and it was remarkable on occasions really that um, the, the amount of effort that, that, that was put in um, and that sense that we have to do everything that we can to actually bring about a resolution here. Welcome back you're listening to Perspective on Manx Radio and um, just before the break there we were talking a bit about um, some of the pressures of, of uh, motorsport events on the island but a theme was perhaps a comparison with some other uh, forces in in the UK um, have any of you had any experience of of, uh, of policing across and some of the some of the changes or differences perhaps well we used to do uh, all our driving courses with Lancashire Police mm. uh, the advanced car advanced bike HGV all the rest of it and on the ones that I did, I used to try and uh, spend some time at the weekends when I wasn't coming back to the Isle of Man, uh, discovering how they dealt with things uh, in the likes of uh, the M6, the motorway patrol people. And I was absolutely amazed to see that some of their vehicles weren't as well equipped as ours. And of course, the reason for that was that uh, our accident vehicle had to have absolutely everything in it because we couldn't call up some neighbouring district. For instance, if you're patrolling the M6 around Lancaster, you can always call up for help at, say, Chorley or Leyland or Preston or wherever, and within a very short time, you've got a whole load more equipment. Uh, we didn't have that luxury, so we had to sort of carry absolutely everything with us, and consequently, some of the vehicles and the equipment that we had was probably better than a lot of much bigger forces. So. Uh, I thought we did extremely well for a small island, but then, you know, when you've got a, a, a big gap of time before you can call on outside assistance, you've more or less got to be able to go it alone, certainly in the first, say, 12 hours probably, and of course in the case of traffic accidents, you just get on and do them however bad they are. Um, I mean, at one time I was the island's accident investigator, so I used to deal with all the fatal and serious accidents, and uh, I think we did them quite well. We've had I, a, I think we, I think the fact that we knew so many people, we could always call on help, couldn't we? Somebody, well, we tax, got very good taxi drivers, for instance, yeah, that we, sort of thing. Well, in the early days, Hector, certainly because when we didn't have radios and the yes, taxi did, yeah. quite yeah. often we'd wind up being given information by taxi drivers relayed from their control room yes. who were on the phone to the, yeah. the police yeah. station uh, because we had no radios. Half of the cars... If the radios were in them, they didn't work half the time. There were huge blank spots that you couldn't get through anyway. Uh, so we used to get a lot of help from the likes of taxis. And even sometimes if you were in a bit of difficulty, you might, for instance, in the Scotch Fort, might be having a, a load of rowdy people yeah. in a pub. Quite often members of the public would pitch in and help, which uh, I'd be very surprised if they would do these days. I think the, uh, well, just to answer your, 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 your directly about the relationship with the UK and the experiences over there I think the you know one of the things that's certainly developed over the certainly over the past few years but but longer than that in, in all honesty is our relationship with other small islands um, all of whom are facing similar challenges to, to us and it's important to actually understand the, the way that they're going about things and where you can uh, you know work together um, and certainly relationships with the UK that's largely centered around that and just just by being part of that wider police family, you see the, how the changes are taking uh, effect and just the changing nature of policing right across uh, Britain, really. Certainly the challenges that they're facing. We've had a, we've had a message in from Anne and uh, something to put to the panel, really, 
um, can you can you ask the panel about their duty of care and and what that entailed when you were on the force? Um, it's a fairly open question, I suppose. Well, I get a duty of care to whom or what? I mean, the the first duty of a constable is the protection of life and property. So, um, I guess in a very broad sense, your duty of care is that you uh, you protect life first and foremost, and and property. And and I mean, my kind of uh, thought on duty of care was always that you you did your best for who whoever you happen to be dealing with, and and whatever kind of uh, circumstance uh, that that they found themselves in that brought them into contact with you and I think you just have to try and remember that um, quite often a, a person might only deal with a police officer maybe once in their life and that might be for something really <coughs> horrible and traumatic um, and you have to try and be sympathetic and helpful and do the do the best that you can uh, for those in the in whatever circumstances they unfortunate circumstances quite often they happen to find themselves in so I think duty of care in just a general open broad uh, context like that is, is quite wide. A little thing comes to my mind there. Um, ex Peter Moyer, ex Inspector Peter Moyer, he was a sergeant at the time with me when I first started on the police, and he he gave me a little tip. He said, "Don't forget, John, when you're in that police station, you're just doing your job. A person comes in there, they might have given days thought before coming to report something to the police. Treat them that way. Treat them with respect. Listen to their problems." And deal with them. So that was a good, a good tip. And I'd, uh, I like to think I continued that through my service. Yeah. On a on a human level, you touched on an interesting <clears throat> point there, and it's something maybe you could argue that um, policemen and women have in common with journalists. You've got to. There's a, there's a challenge <clears throat> about removing, maybe your personal views <clears throat> or or or, yeah. or or biases from from your work. Yeah. You've touched you do, a bit you, on that there. I guess. You do. Yes. No doubt about it. Uh, Alex. Uh, Chemist and Peel said to me one day about the police service, he said, I admire you men, he said, because you've got the one minute to be speaking to the governor and the next minute you're speaking to anyone at all and you've got to adapt to that and that is the police force all over. You have to adapt to who you're speaking to and give them what care they need. Yep. I think it's weighing up that balance of what you just said there, Tom, about actually that the, there are significant um, voices now uh, in, in society, aren't they, arguing for one thing or, or another uh, and the role of the, the the police is to try and maintain that that neutrality um, at, at all time and so that you you do the best possible service you can all round um, um, but yeah absolutely there you know a human <coughs> and and the law doesn't distinguish of course it's whether it be um, people from all different corners of society we we are governed by the same uh, principles and law code, I suppose. Uh, application of the law equally, yeah, is 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 one of those things, isn't it? And it, I don't think necessarily you'll find within this panel, which stretches some time, that the principles of policing have changed that much over the years. You yeah. know, fundamentally, I mean, uh, you know, the mantra nowadays, keeping your people safe. But even if you go mm. back to the sort of Peelian principle, that's essentially what it was about. It was about keeping people safe, doing the best you can to ensure that happens, and prevention's better than cure. And so the activity that you do is is around prevention, and never think you're better than anybody else. Um, I think the one thing that has developed over the years, far great, greater way, is is the way that it's been accepted now that the police can't do things in isolation. You can't arrest or prosecute your your way out of some circumstances, and you need you need to work in partnership with others. Um, and the, the earlier you work together and you bring about solutions, the better. 
we've had a, a message in from Andy, and it's something I was hoping to touch upon, so I will now. Um, I mean, I, I'm not really aware about what the career length of, or the average career length of a, of a, a serving officer is now, but certainly in my mind there are options for people to retire perhaps a bit younger than they might do in other lines of work um maybe to begin with kev um in terms of narpo's uh, role and the support for for policemen um having sort of finished their careers if you like there's still quite a quite a good chunk of people's life post service to to, to work with maybe in that respect Oh, uh, uh, absolutely. If you generally, if you if you said that if you serve your thirty years, which is the the general um, length of time, then you are you are still relatively young when you you emerge from the police. And the one things that you can talk about is, and there is more, and you've got lots to offer. Um, and within that thirty years, you would have you would have picked up an inordinate amount of life experience that you can use to to help and support other people. You will have seen people at their best but you would have also seen people at their worst and and not everybody gains that insight and so that you can then take that uh, and you can use that to to support other people in the community Andy's Andy asks um, why police officers should still be allowed to retire after that period of time um, and I suppose you've, you've partly answered that in a way because the demands of the job um, are a bit different to perhaps what other people might might ex- might expect in, in in their work. Yeah, would that, would um, that be fair? Well, you know, um, that's the 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 way it is. Is the way it is. You, you it's the thirty year <coughs> isn't necessarily written in stone. People serve longer. Um, some people, through various other reasons, will will serve a little bit less than that. If that's um, sometimes what they choose, sometimes they don't. But actually, as I said to you, the accumulative effect for some during that 30 years and, and the experiences they have, actually sometimes the 30 years actually, yeah, your cup is just about full uh, with those different experiences. Uh, and people have legacies and they can take them away from the, uh, from, from the police service afterwards. I, I think, think that, I mean, there's op- often criticism that we, uh, or some police officers do retire early and there's all this that you get a, a good pension and all that sort of thing. But we kind of sign on for 30 years. It's a bit like joining the army or something like that. You can join the army and sign on for 6, 12 or whatever years. Um, I, I joined the police at 19. I knew I was signing on probably for 30 years if I made it that long. Um, and But Kevin's right, and and I go back, I, th- I think I said earlier, some people think, oh, you've had a cushy number here, you, you, you know, you never had to do much. But in those 30 years as a police officer, and I'm not saying that's unique to police officers, you know, nurses, ambulance people, um, colleagues in the fire service, they see some pretty horrendous things. But I think Kevin said, by the end of 30 years, your cup can be pretty full with the experiences and things uh, that you've had to deal with over the years and and some of those experiences stay with you many years later i saw an in, i read an interesting thing in one of the uh, police uh, journals a little while ago about the experience of attending a serious fatal road accident as all of us here have done um the sights the sounds the smells if you go to a car on fire where somebody's been burnt to death that smell sticks in your nose and can still be there and and i can and i'm sure these guys are the same I can drive around the Isle of Man now and go through a particular bend on the road on the TT course, say, and you know that you've been, I can say, I've been to three three fatal accidents at that mm. corner. And those and those things yeah, yeah. are still in your head. Yeah. And those sights and sounds 
um, uh, you know, the wailing of a, of a parent that's just had their child killed in an accident, kind of things like that. They do stick with you for the rest of your life. And like Kevin says, after 30 years of that, you, your cup can be uh, can be pretty full and you're ready to maybe move on and, and do something a little bit and, different. And of course, we're talking about our generation mm. for 30 now. It's, 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 yeah, lo- longer, it's, it's yeah. longer for most now. I so think the guys joining now have signed up for 35, 40 right. years. You um, know, yeah. But, you know, I'm, I'm exactly the same as Paul. I can, I can travel around and I could probably, if I allowed myself to think about it, um, bring back real mm. finite details of, of, of what you, yeah. uh, you've experienced. Um, and it's not just... It's not just the the victim side of it that that you have to deal with. Um, I have met families in circumstances that I'd I'd far rather I had never met them, hmm. and you know, and I, and the, the, the impact on them, um, and it has it, those are the things that collectively over the years I think build up and build up, um, and for 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 some. Uh, it has a, a a lasting impression on them, and and that's where that ongoing support afterwards is is pretty vital. Be useful, say. yeah. From from the from Narpo's point of view, maybe maybe one poll for you. Is there a is there a responsibility to offer people that kind of support mechanism uh, post service? Then, well, part, that's part of what Narpo is about. We don't have any kind of formal structure um, in place or a service that we offer. We do. There are facilities available still via the constabulary, and and uh, certainly in modern times, the constabulary themselves have been quite good in, in <coughs> being able to help out where, uh, where they can. Um, I think historically, though, if you, if you go back certainly through, through my time, um, mental health awareness was not a thing talking about. You just had to man up and get on with it. And I think a lot of the time, we dealt with that kind of thing just by socialising with one another. Um, because you understood the, the pressures and the experiences that you've had um, so our kind of outlet was usually you know going for a few pints after work and that kind of thing and talking to people who understood it and I, I think it's curious as well personally I married a nurse and I know a lot of police officers have married nurses and people like that and I think it's because they have that kind of shared experience as well and understand some of the things things that you're going through so yeah NARPO we do try and help out where we can um, there's still quite a stigma I think probably be among the older generations who we're principally dealing with obviously um, I don't know if stigma's, stigma's quite the right word but there's a reluctance perhaps sometimes it's looked at as maybe a bit of a weakness to come forward and ask for help And I, but I think that is changing and I think it's I mean I'm not directly involved in what's going on in the, in the constabulary now but I think it's great to see that they've got these mental health nurses now on board working with the job I mean that's principally for people that they're dealing with obviously um, but I'm sure there's some overspill into that as well, that the guys who are still working and going through the experiences. I mean, what we're talking about now isn't unique. It happened for, to Hector before his time, and it's still happening to the, the guys and girls that are serving now sort of thing. Um, but I think it's great that, and all these things like Mental Health Week, of health, Mental Health Awareness, and <clears> it's <throat> okay not to be okay and all that kind of thing. I think it's great that that is becoming more and more prevalent now, and that people are more able to accept that maybe they do need help, and that there is some kind of help uh, generally available out there if you're happy to look for it. Um, interesting. Do you, do you feel it's sort of still a, a taboo topic in, in some way? Um, well, I think largely sometimes it's easier, isn't it, to talk to someone when you can see they've got a broken arm. How's your arm? Sometimes uh, when people um, are suffering through some, some kind of, uh, of, of mental illness, um, Sometimes you can't necessarily see that, 
and sometimes it's it's difficult to come up with the words it's difficult to 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 broach the subject um whereas sometimes uh, just a simple how are you is is just the easiest intro um into having an open discussion about how someone feels but i think it comes back further to that in my mind it's it is that recognition, as Paul says, that, that some of the things that you'll experience, some of the things that you'll see, you'll hear, you'll smell, all those type of things, they, they do they do leave a trace there. And, and sometimes it's all right right at the very beginning just to ask and recognise the fact that what we dealt with there was horrible, firstly. And does, any, does anybody want to have a chat about it? But then sometimes it is about shared experiences and, and sometimes it's easier to talk to a group of people who can... Um, uh, there's that degree of understanding and, and not necessarily empathy because I think a lot of people out there have empathy but they have that shared understanding of, of what it is that you've experienced and I, you I think that happens through. now, part of NARPA is we, we have fairly <coughs> regular social events where guys from, from Hecla's era right through to, 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 to Kevin and, and people like that who have just retired we still get together and of course all the old war stories come out but, and, I, and I think Richard and John will agree even talking about stuff like that 20, 30, 40, 50 years later is still a help to you to be able to get some of your feelings out and especially with people who understand and have been through similar things themselves. To a degree, yeah. this is the only opportunity you get because mm. when it actually happened, and I'm, I'm going back a lot of years, obviously, mm. the attitude wasn't the same at all. To sort of say that you needed help, I mean, counselling wasn't heard of, um, you would have been laughed out of the police station mm -hmm. uh, because the old adage used to be if you can't stand the heat, get out of the kitchen. Uh, we were the police, we were the guys who responded to whatever was going on and it was our job to deal with things however unpleasant they were. So in terms of understanding or counselling or help, uh, you could forget it pretty much um, because nobody was going to admit to what was then perceived as a weakness of needing help or needing to talk about it, mm. uh, it didn't happen. It's as simple as that. Um, when I joined the police, a lot of the guys were ex-military. They'd either served in World War Two or Korea or they'd done national service or whatever. And the attitude was completely different. Um, if you weren't cut out for the police, if you couldn't deal with unpleasant things, then the suggestion was go and do something else. You weren't going to get any help. I think society generally is becoming far more open to discuss mental health uh, concerns and illness <coughs> in a way that it possibly wasn't the case um, some years ago, which I can only think is a, is a positive thing. Definitely. Um, and, it, you know, and yeah. it, 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 it is something that people need to open up. And it was really remiss of me, I think, before, <coughs> not to mention the role of, of, our, of our families in, in that. Because the, yeah, the family so. unit around a, a, a police officer sometimes is that first point of call for for support and welfare support and, and dealing with some of those issues that you'll come across in just discussing about how you feel. Of course they're there yeah. when you come home from some they of these are. things and you can yeah. come home quite broken sometimes. Yeah. They're the people that are there to support you. Yeah. And, yeah. and John mentioned earlier as well, in the outstations. Yes, in the outstations, like Paul Rose for instance, uh, my wife used to have to answer the telephone and take urgent calls and relate the call to you and, and deal with incidents sometimes herself, you know. So the wife is a, the family is a big thing with the police officers. Uh, no doubt about that. They deserve recognition as we do the, the police officers themselves, very, very you know. So, yeah. yeah, most definitely, yeah. yeah. But um, with, with regard to the mental health side, I'm like the rest of the lads here. Um, we have dealt with quite a few in the old days. As Richard said, you didn't have that. 
you've had to assess the situation yourself, and if you consider it necessary, you call the doctor. The doctor came in and made the decision whether it was somebody that needed uh, certifying, unfortunately, or whether it was just a case of quieting them down and, and sort them out. But um, you, you gained a lot of experience by being on the beat and, and working with people. And you just had to assess the situation, as I say, call the doctor and, and deal with it. We didn't have the nurses like that. I think it's a good thing, the mental health awareness now. Excellent, because it really will help the men on the beat. As we've um, got Richard with us, I'm going to move on to a fa- fairly heavy topic. It should, should come with a bit of a disclaimer to listeners, I suppose. <clears throat> um, I think we, we, we have to try and touch <clears throat> upon what many people think of as being the worst post-war tragedy uh, in, in, in Manx history. I've just got a bit of a clip of audio here just to, to, to bring something back, first of all. There's absolute pandemonium here. The summer land is ablaze and blazing down. There's absolute... The fire is spreading very rapidly indeed. And it would seem that one of the slot machines has caught fire and started the blaze. Unfortunately, one of the doors in the summer land building will not open. And it's obvious that the whole place... Have you any idea how it started, love? Pardon? Have you no, any idea how it started? Not the least. No? Do you have any idea, no sir? Idea. No idea. That was Manx Radio's Alan Jackson reporting from the scene at Summerland um, almost 46 years ago now. Um, Richard, you were... You were the first officer on on scene. Is that, is, is that is that correct? I don't know if I was the first one there. Um, as you can imagine, things were rather confused, but I was certainly one of the first. And when I went into the building with the fire brigade, I was the only police officer in that area. Um, for all I know, there could have been others. Uh, but we went in from the side. We, we came in, if you like, behind the fire because it was progressing across the front of the building when I arrived. So we went in... Uh, from the the Manx Electric Railway yard side of it and up uh, what I presume must have been a fire escape, a concrete fire escape inside. And um, I wasn't told to go in. It's just one of those things that you turn up as an incident and rather than stand around looking useless, you get stuck in. Um, So I went in with the fire brigade and um, they all had breathing apparatus on, of course, and I didn't, so uh, I couldn't stay all that long, but I I did what I could and... uh, then got out. But uh, yes, it was um, not exactly the best way to go into a building for the first time because I'd never been in Summerland before that, so I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know what the layout of the building was or anything. It touches on something you spoke about a bit in the first hour, about that sort of can-do attitude <coughs> and the, the requirement to, to try and turn your hand to whatever uh, circumstances you're, you're faced with. Um, this being a particularly extreme example, but uh, there's, there's, there's a huge, huge range of pressure, I guess, on... on, on yeah, the, well, the, as you say, the, um, the thing was in those days, it was more embarrassing to stand around and not uh, be involved than it was to do something which, however dangerous it might be, uh, was the last of the two evils, really. You, you quite often went into situations which, when you thought about it later, that really wasn't a good idea. But at the time, you just did it to, basically to be seen to be doing something rather than nothing. <coughs> but my, time. Sorry, John. So my part in that was I was living an uncle at the time up in Balakuri, and uh, somebody shouted, a neighbour shouted, Summerland's on fire. So I went out and you could see this pall of smoke. So I, I was day off, actually, and I thought, going to be an emergency call. So I went and got changed quickly. 
And as I was going out of the close, the car came screaming around the corner, shouting emergency call. I went down to the station, and the station sergeant, I remember it was Archie Corkle at the time, and he said, get the oxygen cylinders over to the fire brigade immediately. So I went to Norwood's hospital, and the, um, the porter couldn't find the key, so we just forced the doors off, got them in, and it cut a long story, so I went straight over, delivered them. The then traffic sergeant, the traffic inspector said to me, get in the car, we've got the tannoy the people up on Strathallan Road above to get away because it's going to go up. We went down the side, and as we went down the side, it just roared up the side of the building. Mm. So we had to shoot round the corner, go up the top, and shout to the people to get off, you know. We went back down, and then the fire brigade said, we want a stretcher, we want a stretcher. Well, David Shimon and myself, the ex-traffic man as well, we took a stretcher, we went to the side, and we were walking up the stairs, and the hot water was flowing down. And then two PO fire brigade men come down, it was all white boys, we found one. So they went down, and one young lad, I think his name was Harding, had got got himself underneath a tap, under the top with a towel round his head, and he saved himself. And they got him out, you know. So that was quite an achievement there. Then they opened up uh, St George's Hall as a mortuary, and from then on, we were just ferrying bodies over. It was a terrible. We had twelve-hour shifts for a week. Then, you know, it was an horrendous time. It's something that, like Kevin has said, it's something you'll never forget in your lifetime. Really horrendous, you know. And, I mean, I don't know. I don't know how you, you go about answering this question, but how can how can one possibly be prepared for that sort of a scenario, whether whether it be psychologically or whether it be in terms of the the, the training you're given? I mean, yeah. it seems an impossible task, mm. really. As Richard said, it's one of those jobs. Unfortunately, you, you have to get on with it and deal with, you know, and uh, you just do it. Um, fortunately, we didn't in those days have this mental health. You didn't get uh, any help in that way. You just got on with it and. Uh, we did, did we? Uh, well, we did. I mean, happened. in terms of, if you want to call it counselling, I happened to go into St George's Hall one day, and I can't <coughs> remember why, but there were a number of bodies uh, strewn around the place. That's why they, they sort of collated everything. And there were two sergeants on permanent mortuary attendant duty there. And as it just so happened, the then Chief Constable Frank Whedon came in with a bottle of whiskey for each of these two guys, and that was the counselling and support that they got. As far as I know, nobody else got any support. Certainly the rank and file who were <coughs> involved, nobody ever came round and said, how are you feeling? Are you coping all right? That didn't happen. Um, straight after that, you got on with another job, whatever came up next, and, and that was it. But I, I think that's, that's... I remember one of those sergeants was Sergeant Jimmy Fisher, but I can't remember who the other one was. Paddy Court. But that speaks, Paddy speaks to the, uh, the the nature of, of policing, I think, in, in so much as it's, a, it's, it's what police officers do. That's the job. It's it's men and women who who serve as police officers. Um, they're the ones who run towards danger when really anybody with any sense about them is running yeah. the other way. Yeah. Uh, and that and that to me is what it is to be uh, a police officer. Um, and that's what duty is all about. It, it, it is stepping up and putting yourself in between whatever the danger is and the members of the public. Who you have a a duty to serve, um, you know, and and you you see and hear so many stories of of police officers and others in emergency services who do that day in day out. And and when I think back during my time, I'm sure guys can can reflect as well. When I think about police colleagues who who were badly assaulted, mm -hmm. um, who were stabbed, um, and it happens, uh, you know, all too regularly, regrettably, um, in 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 the UK particularly. 
but other places, and it's happened here. And but it's the it's the caliber of the person you're looking to, to have as a police officer. Of course, that's something we haven't read. Really, we've talked a lot about accidents and uh, accidents and unpleasant um, experiences, but personal violence is something that mm. comes with it as well. And I'm, I'm sure the guys here, I, I I have been in situations where I've thought if if I lose this fight I'm having with this guy, I I might not live yeah. to see another day. Yeah. Some some of the people you're exposed <clears> to, and you could be working. It's not quite the same now, but you could be working a night shift out in Peel on your own. You know that the nearest assistance is 20, 30 minutes away, mm. and you're grappling with some drunken fisherman mm. whose wrists are about the size of your thighs. Mm. Um, and uh, and there have been times where I've thought, I can't afford to lose this fight. And of course, back in the good old days, all you had was a little lump of wood in your trouser yeah. pocket, which was only good for well, smashing you windows. Didn't, you didn't to, to have any sort of stab-proof yeah. vest or anything. No, you didn't no, have any pepper no. spray or whatever they've got so, nowadays. And that's, you had and a pair of handcuffs and a yeah, piece of and wood. It, yeah. And it was generally accepted if you had to take the truncheon mm. out of your pocket, you'd done something yeah. wrong. You'd you made were, a mistake somewhere. You were losing, yeah. And yeah. We, we mentioned earlier, your mouth, I think, was Kevin said, your yeah. mouth is your best. Chief, chief uh, weapon, yeah. You know, your best weapon is your mouth, talking yourself out of things. But there have been times where that, because of the circumstances and the people you're dealing with, that just doesn't work. But that's not unique to me. I'm, everyone here and everyone who served in 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 the, in the constabulary will have had ex experiences like that. I was and relating that, to Paul and uh, Richard earlier about an incident when I could have been killed. It was a, something that started out of nothing. We got a call to say that there was a a lot of banging going on. I forget that they were they were just building the old folks' home up at uh, Governor's Bridge, and what has happened was uh, some fellows had broken into. At the, the workman's shed, taken some tools, gone over and the telephone box there with the old button B1 with the cash in. Mm -hmm. They broke that open, they were back at the shed trying to smash this open and we arrived. One of them took off and I, I was in the traffic car. I'd got what we call the nifu light, like a mini searchlight and I had it on him running while the boys were chasing, the lads were chasing him. Next one I felt phew, and hit the head on the side and he tried to get the light obviously now after we got him i went down and packed it with a big cold chisel about that long brand new and sharp and and it missed my it flicked my hair could have been killed that's the sort of thing the police put yourselves in without thinking anything about it I mean, you don't expect that sort of thing to happen but it does happen you know there's various incidents when we could i'm sure i like the other lads could have been badly injured mm -hmm. but uh like we just said you get on with it you, we've spoken a bit about the sort of caliber of person it requires <laughs> to to do this job, and you've mentioned a bit about the your, your your mouth being your most important weapon. There's a responsibility there to try and develop skills about maybe diffusing situations. I, I suppose in lots of instances. Yeah. Um, uh, uh, absolutely. You, you know, the last thing you really want to do is is be on the floor wrestling <laughs> 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 with somebody. Yeah. Actually. You know, the best thing you can do is is that talk that talk down the situation, yeah. um, and that is the you know all I think all police officers nowadays that's that's they're told that is your first mm -hmm. response is to try and talk with people and engage with them and rationalise what's happening. Sometimes the, the time for talking ends and you have to do something else, but that is your first port of call, um, and I think that you know. Again, just thinking back, and you, and you look at the men and women in patrol in the island now. At any point, they'd be called upon to go into any of the th situations that we've discussed today. Uh, and I, for one, I feel fortunate that we still got people who are willing to to put their hand up and 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 still do that nowadays. Mm. You know, and it's it's really really fortunate that we have those type of people. Um, and they and they they learn all these skills and they put them to good use. 
You're listening to Perspective on Manx Radio. Time now for a quick ad break. Hot tubs. Relaxing, fun, luxurious and now secure. With an up to five-year warranty on all hot tubs, Arctic Spas offer you security in knowing that your hot tub will last. With cutting-edge Spa Boy automated water care and hot tubs starting from just £5,000, swim spas and Tylo saunas, Arctic Spas offer expert knowledge from a local family-run business who do everything from start to finish. Visit them today on Whitehoe Industrial Estate, Douglas. So, Dewan, you finally took my advice and went for Spectrum Windows for your home improvements. Well, with their quality and price, I couldn't refuse. Along with great service from planning to completion, you get all the latest innovations in roofing and glazing. Oh, Dewan, don't tell the missus that yours are better than ours. Oh, don't worry, Geoffrey. Yours still look as good as new. They're still A-rated and they're guaranteed for ten years. Visit Spectrum Windows, the showroom, Derby Road, Ramsey, or call 817777. Want to save for a rainy day? At Conister, we can't predict the future, but we can offer you a competitive rate for your savings. With the flexibility of fixed terms from six months to five years and the option of annual or monthly interest. Deposit anything from £5,000 up to £1 million with no hidden fees. Find out more about Conister's savings accounts on 694694 or call in to see us on Victoria Street, Douglas. Terms and conditions apply. If you'd love a gorgeous new bathroom, but the cost and the hassle is putting you off, then visit Just Bathrooms in Ramsey. As the home of fixed-price bathrooms, Just Bathrooms give amazing fixed-price quotations for complete bathroom suites, fully fitted, including all plumbing, tiling, electrics, and joinery, with fast turnaround on installation and no unexpected expenses. And Just Bathrooms can do all this on 0% finance. So what are you waiting for? Bring a little luxury into your life. Visit the showroom in Ramsey or see Just bathrooms.im listen up if you're a pay monthly customer and we'll cut to the chase right now switch to any 24 month medium pay monthly plan with Shaw and get the first six months half price yep cut your airtime costs in half with Shaw the island's best network and enjoy faster data better call quality better coverage and roaming too keep your existing number and switch today at Shaw in Douglas Ramsey and Port Erin or visit Shaw.com What valuation would you expect to get on your car when trading it in against a new or quality second-hand car? Some car dealers may flatter you by giving you an inflated valuation, but then you may find the new car you're buying has an inflated price too. At IM1 Car Centre, we price all our cars competitively and strive to save you money on your new vehicle. Visit IM1 Car Centre on Facebook or at Domain Road, Douglas. IM1 Car Centre, the only island dealer with over 200 five-star customer reviews on Facebook. Welcome back to the final part of Perspective this week. Something we spoke about a bit, um, which I'd like to sort of come back to a bit, is about what's changed over over a couple of generations of, of police work. Um, Kev, maybe as the, the most recent retiree, uh, what, what were the biggest changes under your, your tenure? I think the, 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 the technology, I think, generally is the, is the biggest change because it's, it's changed the shape of just about everything um, and every aspect of, the, of, uh, of criminality now that the police come into contact with will have a digital element. Um, and, you know, when you can have a warehouse full of paper now condensed onto a mobile phone, 
sometimes um, it's look like looking for a needle in a haystack with regards to the evidence which is required. And you see that debate all the time about disclosure and, and the requirements to actually examine this material. So I think between the 30 years um, that, that I was in, or just, just under, it was the change in technology um, that was, and also in forensic science, and just what is happening out there now in terms of what scientists are able to do and able to determine around crime scenes changed immeasurably. Um, but in terms of the police service I th over I, here... Sorry. Well, I, I think I, I've reflected, and sometimes when we have these socials, you, you, you get talking, and, and I think I joined the police in 1978 um, and served through to the 21st century, 30 years, obviously. And really that period of time, and I'm not the only one, there's a, quite a few people done that period of time, the changes in technology have just been, you know, astounding. It was still, we go back, the guys have talked about when I first started, we had personal radios, but there weren't always enough to go around. So you could, you know, it wasn't unusual to go out on the beat and you were still, some of the pillars were still in use then. I think there was only about four or five of the old police pillars, the police call boxes in use, but you could go out. Um, and I do remember being a young 19-year-old lad without a clue in the world what I was supposed to be doing and, and getting fired out on the street and, and the, the closest thing you can have is, is a phone. And going back to public support as well, I can remember being without a radio and fighting, trying to arrest somebody for a theft, fighting with them in the street and, and having to ask a member of the public to, because again, again, no mobile phones or anything like that, will you please go to a phone box, uh, to a phone box or the nearest phone you can find, yeah. dial 999 and say a policeman needs assistance. So th those are kind of things. But now... You know, the radios are, are, are pretty good. But we go back, reports were done on typewriters. I'm sure the guys here probably hand-wrote some of them. Yeah. But we had old manual typewriters, and if you wanted an extra copy of something, you had to put the old sheets of carbon paper in to do two or three copies. And if you made a mistake, it was a it was a right mess. And some of the typewriters, you had to hit the keys that hard that the letters like the O would punch a hole right through the paper. And, <laughs> and, and then I do, I do recall this fantastic new machine being introduced which was called a photocopier mm. and if you found that you needed an extra copy of something that you hadn't already catered for you had to ask the section sergeant that you could go and get a copy then you had to present yourself in front of the the sergeant in charge of the headquarters office who would get the key out and take you to this special <laughs> locked room where he would stand over your shoulder and watch you make one photocopy of something because that that was all there was but it, so of course you jump from a time like that through you know eventually we got electric typewriters and then we got an electric typewriter that had a small word processor attached to it and that was fantastic you could type two or three pages of report and go back and alter things and things but uh, so that that period of time has gone from that ancient technology tech, ancient technology right through to what i'm sure there's kids listening now who just couldn't probably can't comprehend the the, the, the type of thing we're talking about we, the biggest we, thing we, i find really is uh, the number that the summertime because summertime in the 50s and 60s anybody who's seen the postcards of douglas promenade or anything at all was absolutely heaving mm. 11 o'clock at night the pubs would come out the dance halls would come out the villa the palace the derby castle all going ding dong you know and it would come out you couldn't hardly walk along the promenade and there were skirmishes every night there were fights every night a lot of them you could just go in and separate and shake hands boys and off you go some had to come in obviously but uh, those times, I mean, that's all gone now. That's the biggest change, I think, in the policing now, um, because you, you're talking earlier about TT being busy. I mean, we you had the normal traffic, normal holiday season, plus the TT traffic coming in as well. And it was just chaotic. And we had 97 men dealing with it. Didn't bring anybody over. 
So you can imagine what it was like. You were, you were going solid every day. And that, to my mind, is the biggest change now. Yeah. You say 97 men, and uh, we, we, have, we have an all-male panel here. But, of course, we've referenced a few times in the programme, it is, of course, now police men and women. Yeah, that, well, that, we had that, women that, as well. We had four police women at that time, yeah. So that, that ratio has changed quite a bit, yeah. certainly, yeah. Over, over, oh, yeah. over your tenure, yeah. John. Um, a lot, yeah. Changed a lot. Well, that's what I was going to reflect on for the, for the, for the constabulary itself, is, is the makeup. Uh, of, uh, of the Conservatory <clears throat> now and, and the, the diversity and the absolute need to keep going with that uh, um, to ensure that you know the, the, the Constabulary is reflective of the community that it serves and you know and it's and it you know there's a lot of work being done on that still more to be done uh, with regards to it um, and that and broader vulnerability as well not just the the, the, the diverse makeup of the Constabulary but also recognizing um, responding to diversity within the community, you know, uh, and uh, and vulnerability in the community is is one of those important things as well. We've had a message in from Rob, um, an interesting one. He's he said he was a volunteer at a local museum who had caught uh, or had seen like book, books of offences committed on the island, and this was in the eighteen eighties. Um, it shocked him that that lads who were 11 or 12 or 13, were given up to 25 strokes of the birch for scrumping <coughs> apples, it says here. Um, there's a serious point there, though, that the the, the tools at a modern officer's disposal are, are, are quite different, perhaps, to, to previously, John. The, the what sorry, say again. The, the, you know, the, the tools. The tools, oh, uh, yeah. The birch, of course, was disbanded, wasn't it? Uh, I couldn't tell you if you've got time. It's a funny story. As I say, lots of skirmishes. I was in Stansfield on duty, and there was a group of lads getting a bit boisterous. I tried to calm them down, and they wouldn't calm down. They went off into Castle Street, warned them again, right, lads, calm down, or I'm bringing the van down. And one of them said to them, hey, come on, calm down, Joe. They're going to take us up there and birch us. I said, yeah, that's exactly what will happen. <laughs> they didn't think about going through court, so they calmed the situation. I let them think that. But of course, it all had to go through court. And uh, it was a thing that was uh, sent off, but it was it was a shame because I personally was uh, in favour of it. Having any policeman down on the street, and you saw some of the violence at times. Some of them deserved it, you know. I know there are a lot of people who don't agree with it, but I personally did agree with it that uh, we didn't have a say in it, of course, you know. Another another message in. I'm trying to get through as many as I can. Um, Andy asks, what about police officers that have gone rogue? Um, do they or, or, or why do they? Maybe Kevin? Uh, the, the police service is supposed to reflect the community. So just like the community, you'll have the odd one. You get a wrong one, don't you? Who isn't, who isn't, yeah, who isn't suited, yeah. who does something wrong. Mm -hmm. um, and absolutely, you, you root them out, you find them out, and you deal with them. And if they've, if they've been involved in criminality, they get arrested, they get charged, they put to court, and sometimes they go to prison. And that's just the way it is. And there's, there's nobody that resents them more than the the, the officers yeah, that they've betrayed by their their behaviour. Um, uh, yeah, 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 absolutely, because, yeah. you know the greater majority of guys and girls uh, are in it for for the, for the good. Um, but you know you get a rotten apple in, in every barrel, and you can't weed them all out. Mm. So yeah, there have been some bad uh, bad ones, um, but hopefully we get them and, and root them out. And uh, yeah, I mean they need to build on that, Paul, isn't it? Mm. It takes you know it takes the entire police service, say for the island to build up the trust with the community. It takes one to, to damage that yeah. trust. So all that hard work that's been put in uh, by, by, the rest of the, uh, by the rest of the force just goes sometimes overnight by that, the actions of that one person. That's why 
you know, it, it upsets, annoys, and frustrates and angers yeah. the people who who are left to to then start again. You know, um, but again, just because we're we're, we're reflective of the community, sometimes that's going to happen infrequently, fortunately. But when it does, I like to think it's dealt with well and robustly. Um, Richard, maybe another point sort of coming from that a bit in terms of the public perceptions of, of police um, is that something that you feel has changed perhaps? I suspect it has um, bear in mind as I said before I retired in 1993 so I can't necessarily speak of how things are now but when I started in the police uh, the police I think were very much a part of the community uh, for instance those based in Douglas had to live within a very short distance of the police station which of course in those days was in Athol Street you couldn't for instance live in Peel and work in Douglas and so forth uh, everybody knew who the police were it was so and so who lived in whatever street and quite often you were so much a part of the community that people would actually call at your house and want to talk about some police issue knowing that you were a policeman not the fact that you weren't on duty or anything like that they just wanted to have a, a chat with somebody and have a bit of advice um, you were of course also more in touch because 90% of the time you were on foot patrol there were very few cars when I started uh, I said before CID had a couple the motor patrol had a couple uh, and there was a station van and that was about your lot um, you didn't have radios you didn't have mobile phones you didn't have computers the whole thing was on a different level and we I suppose you'd say um, probably had more respect I think than from members of the public who as I said before would sometimes pitch in and help if you were in a difficult situation um, sometimes say scotch fortnight when things tend to get more than a little boisterous and you'd sort of go into situations in pubs which if you'd had time to think about it was probably not a good idea and often members of the public would <coughs> weigh in and help you so you were very closely associated with the public and um, I would say to a degree also uh, the shopkeepers and other business people uh, as has been said before we didn't have radios but there were 19 police telephone pillars scattered around the town and when they wanted you somebody at the headquarters would switch the light on and when you saw it you'd go to the thing answer the phone and find out what you wanted for but of course during the course of the day inevitably you'd want to go for a cup of tea or two somewhere and you could pop into certain places and uh, the staff in the shop for instance would sort of uh, make you a cup of tea and from time to time they'd nip out and have a look and make sure the light wasn't on so you weren't wanted while you were in there illicitly having a cup of tea so they worked very closely with us and obviously if there was an incident for instance of shoplifting or any other sort of a problem Second we would respond perhaps all the more quickly because essentially they were friends of ours there's, there's a, a perception, and it's certainly one that I have, um, if somebody is a police officer, are they, once you have that badge, and I mean that both literally and, and metaphorically, do you become sort of defined by that a bit, so that maybe it's hard to detach your, your personal life a bit from, from profession? Practically impossible to detach, <coughs> I would have said. I think, um, <laughs> might be a slightly old-fashioned view, but... I'm still of the of the opinion of uh, policing is 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 who you are, mm. not what you do, and so it becomes almost impossible to separate the two. And of course, 
there's rules and regulations that govern private life anyway, unlike uh, some other jobs. So how mm-hmm. you conduct yourself um, is is um, both at work and within your private life. There is an element of scrutiny to that anyway. So I think that even fr- more so. Yeah, I, I mean think there was a time when you had to get permission mm-hmm. to get married, and they would do a yeah. check on your proposed wife uh, as to her yeah. background and suitability and one thing or another. You know, so it was very restrictive in that respect. Uh, yeah. Also, of course, as to where you lived, you couldn't just decide, oh, I'm going to go and buy a property or rent a property somewhere else. You had to get the okay before you could do that. It, it was very restrictive in those mm. ways. Does, does that make it harder, perhaps, to have uh, downtime or personal time or, or may, maybe even impossible to, to do so? Yeah. No, I don't think it's impossible. It's, no, I think it reflects a little bit back to what you were saying earlier. How, how do policemen and policewomen do these things? You know, why do you know it's the right thing? Why do you go into places where nobody else goes? And I think that links into this. It's it's the type of people who become police officers. It's what you're about. It's the kind of yeah. thing you are. And once you're a police officer, I mean, there's the old saying: once a copper, always a copper, and that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, usually, usually said in a derogatory fashion. <laughs> uh, I have to say, um, but um, I think it's just the kind of makeup of the kind of people. Because being a bobby isn't for everybody, obviously. Um, and it's the it's the kind of people. And and some people start the job and don't last very long because yeah. they realise it. You know, they're not they're not cut out for it or you know the job isn't cut out for them so Mm. I think that those two questions tie in and say it's just the type of people that you are really. I think it does affect you when you're going out socially I can remember going into a a local pub after being in the cinema with an ex-colleague and they walked in and the manager came over said official or private boys you know Mm. wanted to know whether we're on official business or whether we're just having Mm. a drink and that sort of thing They, they know you and they want to know what you're there for, sort of thing. So it does, mm-hmm. does get into your private life to a degree. And I, I think you've got to accept that as a police officer. And of course, in a place like the Isle of Man, especially, you can't always avoid <coughs> some of your customers, shall we say, um, <laughs> on social occasions. Mm-hmm. And you will go into pubs and places like that where you, you come face to face with people who you've dealt with in the past. And some of them are not always very complimentary about them. Um, uh, the previous associations you've had so that that can be difficult at times as well just finally 30 seconds to go i just want from each of you um would you do it again yes yes i would yeah yeah absolutely yeah definitely i, I, yeah. I hasten to add a ride of that i wouldn't do it now <laughs> if i had my time over again if we were going back to yeah, 1962 yeah. i'd do it yeah. but if you said would you do it now then the answer is definitely yeah. not no. it's a different it's a different <laughs> job right. now. it's thank, a different job now thank you very much indeed to my guests um paul john richard kev and and hector of course as well thanks for listening take care <laughs>